All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Tuesday morning show for you today, including that expanded mask mandate in Vancouver schools. That was the move last night by the Vancouver School District. All Vancouver school kids now required to be masked up in school, including kids in kindergarten to grade three. Those youngest kids currently exempt under the provincial mask mandate the Vancouver School Board, though, going further than that. Now will other school districts follow suit? You've got parent groups in Surrey, Victoria, other school districts calling for expanded mask rules in their schools, too. I'll speak to one of the leaders of those groups on the show today. Also on the show today, did the Chinese Communist Party influence the outcome of the federal election? Defeated conservative MP Kenny Chu from B.C., he believes interference by the Chinese government, may have cost him his seat in the House of Commons. He even talked to CSIS about it. I'll speak to a former CSIS analyst on the show today, Phil Gursky. He's done a lot of research on this, so that's going to be great. We've got all that and lots more on the show today. But first, we start with the Vancouver School District last night mandating mandatory masks for all kids in school, expanding the mask rules in Vancouver. Should other school districts do it too? And should they stop there? Could they go further? How about mandatory vaccinations for teachers and school support workers with COVID on the rise in the school system? Let's discuss now with my guest, Barry Penner. He is the former Attorney General of British Columbia's Senior Counsel, with Penner Pacific Advisory Services. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Barry, thank you for coming on today. It's great to be here, Mike. Okay, what do you think of that move by the Vancouver School Board to expand that mask mandate in Vancouver? All kids required to mask up now, even the youngest kids. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, A negative person might say what took them so long, but we have seen around the province that school districts are waiting for leadership from the provincial level uh, even though I believe school districts could take a lot of action on their own, they are tending to wait to be told what to do. Um, so this is a positive sign that one school district has taken matters into their own hands, but it's, it's only one step. Um, for uh, Well, since the summer, I've been calling for mandatory vaccinations for all school support staff, including teachers, because they work for extended hours in enclosed spaces with young children many of whom under the age of 12, of course, are not eligible to be vaccinated. And to be blunt, I don't think it's appropriate for adults to be spending extended periods of time in enclosed spaces if they're unvaccinated with our vulnerable children. Um, So uh, I think it's well past due that we go beyond masks and require all adults working in the school system in close proximity to children uh, to be vaccinated. Okay, do we see other jurisdictions around in Canada or around North America that have brought in a rule like that, mandatory vaccination for teachers? Absolutely. So uh, we're behind the curve on this one uh, as a province. Um, We've seen it announced in New York City, uh, California, various school districts, uh, Oregon, Washington State, even parent volunteers in Washington State. If you want to go into a school and, and be a parent volunteer and supervise basketball or any other extracurricular activity, you have to provide proof of vaccination in Washington State, uh, I think starting on November the 1st, that that requirement's been announced. And then here in Canada, uh, Canada's largest school district, the Toronto School Board, has announced that all teachers and support staff will have to be vaccinated uh, by November. So there are clear examples elsewhere where uh, other jurisdictions are taking action to protect vulnerable children. 
Okay, speaking to former Attorney General Barry Penner, it's interesting to look at the the legal aspect of this. Like the BC Teachers Federation, the teachers union had earlier indicated that they'd be okay with this. They'd be on board with mandatory vaccination rules in schools and they were willing to work with the government on it, which it took some people by surprise. Like some people were wondering, could the union resist this? Like we see the, the BC Nurses Union, for example, has come out opposed to mandatory vaccination for nurses. But the BC Teachers Union had said, well, we're li- willing to work with the government on this. We're willing to work with Dr. Bonnie Henry. But Dr. Bonnie Henry did not want to go there, did not want to go to mandatory vaccination for teachers in, in schools. What do you think of that? Uh, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. I did notice that the BCTF uh, statement that you referenced came out after the BC government and Dr. Bonnie Henry announced what the plans would be for schools and that it would not include vaccination for uh, staff being required in schools. Uh, and it was only after the rules were put in place that the BCTF said, well, if we'd been asked, we wouldn't have been opposed uh, necessarily to vaccination requirements. Uh, but I, I think given the rapid change in the situation, and let's face it, all we've seen here is changing situations since COVID started. Um, the needle keeps moving. So we have to move along with it. I think it's time to revisit uh, the decision upon which schools reopened in, this, uh, in September, early September, and say, you know what, we've, we're seeing an escalating number of uh, outbreaks in school closures, such as here in Chilliwack, where I live. Another one announced uh, now in Abbotsford, yeah. we're going to online learning, right. uh, Maple Ridge. Um, uh, given the escalating uh, spread of COVID amongst children and teachers in schools, I think we need to move to uh, extra protection. Okay, can individual school boards overrule the provincial mandates that have been put in place? I mean, we just saw the Vancouver School District last night do that precise thing when it comes to this mask mandate. Uh, kids in grade uh, kindergarten to grade three currently exempt under the provincial rules. The Vancouver School Board say, well, we're bringing in our own rules. We're requiring masks for every kid. No, anyway, can, can, other school dist- can other school districts do that? And do you expect other school districts will follow suit? And could they do the same thing with mandatory vaccination? Could an individual school district bring in their own vaccination rules? Well, uh, you said overrule. I, I don't see it as overruling. It, it's in addition to. So the provincial okay. guidelines or, or requirements are the floor. And I do think it's open to school districts to uh, look at ways that they can go beyond the minimum and add additional protection. And again, seeing the rapid escalation cases, it's now the, the one of the fastest growing cohorts are among school-aged children in terms of the spread of COVID. Um, so the situation has really changed in BC compared to last year, where we didn't see a lot of spread among students and children. This year we are. So I think we need to adapt. And uh, one of the things we could also do in addition to mandatory vaccinations for adults working with children is go back to the cohort system that we had at schools just again to try and limit the spread between students. Uh, The cohorts were eliminated this year, um, even though we know the Delta is much more infectious. So Uh, I think we have to be flexible and willing to adapt. Do you think how do you think this would help? correct or check the spread of COVID in, in schools like you already see some resistance from in some parents from some some parents from some groups there's not as much resistance to masks in schools that we see in jurisdictions like the, the United States but there is still some resistance and I was reading some complaints this morning for example that this if you force the youngest kids to wear masks this could be emotionally traumatizing for kids it could it could stunt their emotional development 
it could stunt their learning and uh, verbalizing skills if, if they can't see the, the teacher's mouth moving, for example, while they're learning important important communication skills. Like, uh, and, and maybe it's not going to make that much of a difference anyway. How do you, how, what would you say in response to that? Well, uh, I have a six-year-old who's in school, and she has chosen on her own to wear a mask, even though it's not required for her age group. Uh, she's more comfortable wearing a mask. Uh, she's also said that she would not want a teacher that wasn't smart enough to be vaccinated. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> out of the mouth of babes come great wisdom at times. Um, you know, but what we're seeing, there are unfortunately still some holdouts. And that uh, outbreak we had at Promontory Elementary School, and which is now closed uh, to yeah. uh, in-person teaching, there's a number, the health authorities confirmed that within that school, there are unvaccinated staff and teachers. Uh, so that's very disappointing. Uh, I, I think we need to show confidence in the vaccinations, which have been proven. Now, they've now been you know, administered to hundreds of actually billions of people around the world. So uh, we have a huge track record to show just how safe they are and effective at minimizing the spread of COVID. And, and yes, masks are helpful, but vaccines are even more helpful at limiting the spread. Barry Penner, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Now, with COVID cases in BC schools on the rise, no vaccine available for kids under 12. It's having an impact here. Some schools are even shutting down now and moving to online learning after COVID outbreaks. Yesterday, Abbotsford Christian School advised parents they were shutting down in-class learning. Kids there will now stay at home and move to online learning instead. Last week, Maple Ridge Christian School, in-class learning suspended for students in grade 5 and under. Promontory Heights Elementary School in Chilliwack last week also shut down. This has parents worried. They are calling for expanded COVID safety rules. Lots of parent advisory groups getting together, calling on the government for expanded rules. Let's talk to one of uh, the parent activists here now. Rena Diaz is the president of the Surrey District Parent Advisory Council. Hi, Rena. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on today. And I, you were one of several district parent groups that have gotten together and written a letter to the health minister looking for uh, tougher COVID safety rules. Can you tell me your concerns right now and, and why you would like to see the rules expanded? Um, I think that our, well, the rules in itself, when they were released, we didn't agree with them. But within the rules, um, the guidelines stated that regions can implement stricter measures, um, you know, once uh, the health officer for that region decides that it's needed. Um, so, you know, our parent groups, they would approach each region um, health officer and they would try to either have a meeting and talk to them and express our concerns. Um, we've tried contacting the trustees in our districts and we're just, all of our concerns are just falling on deaf ears. And so this, the guidelines and the system, the way that it's set up, it, it's flawed. <clears throat> so then we thought that enough is enough. Um, the school's some of them are starting to shut down. We're, the case-wise uh, numbers are rising. Um, our children are getting sick. Something needs to be done, and the uh, health region officers are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The trustees are not speaking out. Uh, nobody is speaking out for the parent voice, and we decided that we're going to come together as a group, and the group keeps growing. We're having yeah. other DPACs uh, join us. And we decided that now we're calling on the Minister Whiteside, uh, Whiteside and uh, Minister Dix to answer the call to parents asking why aren't you doing more?
Yeah, there's a lot of parent groups are banding together here to call for this. So you've got your group in Surrey, then also parent advisory councils in Vancouver, Burnaby, New West, uh, Souk on Vancouver Island. I, I suspect there will probably be more that will join you as well in the days ahead. Let's talk about some of the... Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, Sabrina. just... I was just going to say that we've, uh, we're still waiting. Uh, Langley and um, Kamloops is also going to be joining us pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not surprised that there a lot of parent advisory groups are now getting together on this. Let's talk about some of the measures you would like to see implemented. It was interesting last night to see the Vancouver School District bring in that expanded mask mandate for kids, for all kids in school, including kids uh, kindergarten to grade three. Would you like to see that mask mandate expanded to these other districts as well? Uh, yes, we would like it to be yeah. province-wide. Uh, we are calling out all of the trustees everywhere. They were elected to oversee our schools and to uh, voice concerns. If the parents are telling you that the mask mandate that is currently in place is not working, we were, we're expecting our trustees to speak out to the government asking for more, and they haven't. Um, so we're hopeful that uh, because Vancouver um, did that last night, that other districts will soon do that too. Uh, specifically here in Surrey, you never hear of our trustees. They are really silent. Um, it's, mm. as if, it's as if they're non-existent. So we're hopeful that maybe this will get them to uh, take a leading role and um, voice their cons- our, the parent concerns to the government. Right. Speaking of Rena Diaz, President, Surrey District Parent Advisory Council, how about teachers and support staff being required to be vaccinated? Is that something you would like to see? Uh, yes, we would actually. Um, Ontario has already taken that step, and I'm quite saddened that uh, BC claims to be the leader in this pandemic, and yet we're falling behind on that measure to protect our children. And when speaking to the um, unions here at uh, Surrey and with BCTF, they're calling for the same thing as well. Yeah. Of course, that they're respectful of their staff that might need exemptions. Um, so. That's why in our letter we stated that we're asking for the government to work with those stakeholders um, in coming up with how that's going to work out for their workers. Um, But I know that like our teachers and our EAs, all of our staff, they are parents as well, right? So if the national call is for all of us adults to get vaccinated, they're answering that call as well. And so it's just a matter of implementing a mandate for vaccine, um, vaccines to be applied to all of the staff within the schools as well. And we would also wanted to um, schools to close their doors for now, the elementary schools, to close their doors um, to the public, like how we did last year. Uh, right now, um, public groups who usually rent out the gyms, the, they can start to do that. So that means that we're having unvaccinated, possible unvaccinated adults walking into the schools, um, putting our children more at risk. Okay, so you're, you, would requ- you would like to see what, like proof of vaccination for volunteers or parents if, if they're going into a school, they would have to show proof of vaccination? Yes, yes, yeah. we would like that. Yeah, okay. If, if, you're not gonna, if we're not going to have vaccine made available to children under 12, should we not be taking every step possible to keep them protected for as long as we can? Or okay. are you telling me that we're going to open the doors to everybody and let everybody just come right back on in and expose our children? It doesn't make sense. How much COVID is circulating in the schools right now? Like, what are you hearing as the head of the Surrey Parent Advisory Council? How many schools have had exposure notices go out, you know? A lot of schools. In Surrey, it's rising by the minute. And 
we're getting just email. We are having a hard time keeping track of that. Honestly, we're relying on the uh, BC School COVID tracker that's being run by two parents to keep us up to date because I don't know how those two ladies are doing it. We can't keep up with the emails that we're getting, um, with, especially with our most vulnerable students and who have uh, family members that are immunocompromised, they are very concerned. They were talking about a, a notification letter causing anxiety in the parents. Yeah. That's nothing. That is nothing to what is happening to our parents right now. The, uh, the not knowing that their children are being exposed, the not knowing that their child could possibly get really sick, that, my friend, is anxiety at its worst. Yeah, yeah, you're referring there to Dr. Bonnie Henry earlier on when they stopped issuing those notification letters because she said that she felt that the the notification letters were causing anxiety to parents. I mean, I've got kids in the public school system myself. I remember last year getting a couple of notification letters. And I mean, I I don't think that caused me anxiety. I I think what it was was a bit of a a wake-up call to make sure my own kids were masked up and following the rules. Uh, so that's, you know, I appreciated getting the information. Like, I think most parents would like to know, you know, they'd like to know what's going on. But your thoughts? Yeah, we all we all want to be, um, you know, aware of what is happening in our schools. Um, it makes us, you know, like how the other parents said earlier, if I hear that there's an exposure in a school, I remind my child every day before I drop them off, masks, you know, right. wash your hands. But if nothing is, if I'm not aware that there's an exposure, I'm not going to tune into the fact that I should be reminding my child. So it, it's, it's a, like how you said, it's a wake up call. Why would they shut that down? It just doesn't yeah. make any sense. No, I don't, I don't think it did. And, and of course, they reversed that. So Bonnie Henry announced, OK, we've heard from parents. We're going to start sending out notification letters again. But are, are you saying that the system is still not functioning well, like you're still not getting it's the not. information quickly? Yeah. It's not. It needs to move way faster. I think that uh, on, for Surrey, the only reason why it worked out was because Jordan Tinney acted quickly. He was on top of getting those notices out. He wasn't waiting for Fraser Health to act. Fraser Health was not keeping up with it. So we were very proud that Jordan Tinney was leading um, in that regard. And then other districts decided to follow. Um, this year, though, um, they're following provincial health orders. And like I said, we tried to meet with Fraser Health um, regional officer we weren't even giving the time of day we wrote a letter you know expressing our concerns for our parents in our district and they just said to us well we're we're following provincial health guidelines okay then what is the point of there being a, um, a section in the guideline that the ministry released saying that the provincial health officer can make uh, recommendations for the region it defeats that purpose if they're not yeah. even listening to what's going on in that community. Okay, uh, Jordan Tinney, of course, the superintendent of the the Surrey School District. How about, um, you're also calling for rapid testing for COVID to be available in schools and for teachers to be involved in contact tracing. Could you expand a bit on that? How would that work? Okay, so an example is is that right now, um, the air transportation industry not really a big deal, I think, is uh, providing rapid tests to their employees to be able to take at home. And so I wondered, how is it possible for that industry uh, that's not dealing with children is, is having rapid tests made available to them, and yet it's not being made available to staff at schools, um, to the children that are going to schools? Um, you know, other areas are doing it, so why isn't BC implementing something like that? It would help 
to uh, quickly find out if there is an outbreak happening within our schools and maybe stop it before it right. goes to um, be uncontrollable. Uh, Rena, last question for you. If a parent out there is, is worried or if there's a COVID outbreak in a school and maybe like you mentioned, a scenario where you might have immune compromised people at home, is there still that option to keep your kid at home and go to move to online learning? Like, is that available? No, it's not. I know that they said that it is. It's not. It's being done on a case-by-case um, kind of situation, and, and it's not working out very well. Uh, our parents are not having a, um, a equal access to education with that option. It's, it's not working, and that's why we put it on the letter that it needs yeah. to be revised. Uh, especially our most vulnerable, they are missing out on school. They are being left out. These guidelines are not helping them whatsoever. Okay. Uh, We're following it very closely, to say the least. Thank you very much for coming on today. appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. We've seen three schools shut down online or in-person learning here the last few days because of COVID outbreaks. The Vancouver School District last night expanding that mask mandate. All kids now in Vancouver schools required to wear masks, even the youngest kids in grades kindergarten to grade three. Phone me on this now, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Matt in Langley. Hi, Matt. Hey, Mike. Thanks for covering this. Sure. Yeah. So I got a point about the uh, school exposure notices. We got one. Um, we looked at it. Of course, the day we got it, we realized our kid was exposed six days earlier. And um, so we go get our kid tested. He's in kindergarten, um, positive for COVID. Oh. Um, so now I got a four-year-old at home who's in a uh, preschool program. She's also positive, And then another two-year-old, and he's also positive. So all three kids positive for COVID. My wife and I are negative because we're both double vaccinated, so vaccines appear to help. Um, You know, it's difficult when you receive notifications six days later because all three of our kids are totally asymptomatic. They had no idea. Nobody had any idea they were even carrying COVID. We had no reason to suspect or to test them at all. So you got six days of kids going, doing their other extracurricular things like hockey, doing this and that, and going into shops and all the things we normally would do. Um, They don't have to wear masks. They're under six years old, but, you know, who knows? They could have been bumping this thing around. So I think these exposure notices have got to be, they're a good thing, but they've got to come out pretty quick. Matt, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through that as as a family with uh, three little kids with COVID. Like, how are they doing? What are their symptoms like? Are they okay? They had no symptoms. No you, symptoms, you, you, wow. Nothing, okay. nothing at all. You'd have no, no reason to suspect anything. Wow, but they've all tested positive, so now they've got what? They're self-isolating at home now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you think, like, you mentioned that, I think it was your son, you got an exposure notice about your son, uh, six, yeah. and the exposure was six days earlier. Do you think your son sort of brought it home from school? Do you think that's how it oh, hap- happened? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so you would have liked to have known a heck of a lot quicker. Well, if I had known a lot quicker, number one, I, I probably would have stayed at home from work a lot earlier. I wouldn't have sent my kid to hockey practice. I wouldn't have sent him to karate class. Um, wow. You know, all those all those sort of things. I wouldn't have let him come with me to the grocery store. Um, yeah. Yeah, and have all, have all those people been notified now, like your your son's karate class? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, oh, boy. Contact okay. tracing's all over this stuff, right? Um, yeah. We keep pretty strict schedules when you got young kids you kind of need to so it, 
it's all right, but, you know, scary, right? It is, Matt. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with you and your family there as you go through that. I, re- yeah. I appreciate you sharing that story. Let's go to Sandra on the line in Delta. Hi, Sandra. we got about a minute left here. Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say that I have a granddaughter down in Santa Cruz, California. She's seven years old. Last year, they had to wear masks, so she was just six. This year, it's masks, and they're tested twice a week in their school to make sure that everybody's okay. You mean like every kid in the school is tested? Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. They are. Okay. And so I I really have a... I struggle to uh, understand why we're more diligent or proactive here in B.C., yeah. Okay, Sandra, thank you for that. That's very interesting. And I'll tell you what, the pressure is building here. I mean, once you've got one school district, especially a big one like Vancouver, uh, going to that expanded mask mandate like the Vancouver School District did last night, I think that puts a lot of pressure on some of these other school districts to follow suit and do the same thing. A lot of pressure out on the province here as well. Now let's talk about the legal ideology that is driving the anti-vaccination movement now, known as the sovereign citizen theory, or more commonly in Canada, the free men on the land movement. We see this on display at anti-vax rallies, or if you go to an anti-vaccine website or a Facebook page, You will often see these legal talking points behind this ideology or this theory. One of the rallying cries, I do not consent. I do not consent. You ever hear that on anti-vax talking points? It's part of this movement of the free men on the land movement, the sovereign citizen theory. Often uh, proponents of this will say that uh, they can serve people with legal documents. For example, last week, when we saw anti-vaccine protesters enter those schools in Salmon Arm, they said they went in there because they wanted to serve the principal of the schools with a legal notification, a notification of liability. That is part of this movement, this legal ideology. Have a listen to this here now. These are some of the protesters in Salmon Arm last week and their, their interactions with police. We need to get the information and find out. No, no, we need to find out. Right now, you guys need to find out. It's your job to protect the community. Please find out what they are informing the kids with. If they are saying... Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Edwin Hodge, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at University of Victoria. He's an expert on this, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Hodge, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, I find this fascinating. I've heard about this movement or this theory or this ideology over the years, uh, this argument, this free men on the land movement. I've heard people make arguments that they don't have to pay their taxes because of this theory or they don't have to pay their parking tickets, that people are sovereign citizens and the government doesn't have control over them if they don't consent to being controlled. Can you can you describe or basically sum up what the, this theory is about and how it works? <laughs> sure. It's um it's it's actually quite a complex pseudo legal theory. But yeah. the the basically the idea is uh if I could sort of encapsulate it is that uh a lot of these folk believe that the the government of the United States or of Canada um are have overstepped their bounds that they've become tyrannical that they are no longer following uh the the law as laid out in the U.S. Constitution or in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They argue that, um, that the government, these governments have actually perpetrated a kind of fraud against 
against their the, their citizens uh, taking out international loans in 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 their citizens names um, you know uh, leveraging their their social insurance numbers these sorts of things and so what they've done is they've created this ideology that says that all of this this legal framework that has been used to regulate the affairs of people uh, all of it is is unjust or unconstitutional or tyrannical and that the only the only real legal uh, the only real legal i guess uh, agreements that can that can be had are those in which individual citizens explicitly consent to to government mandates or to government uh, legislation so in other words these folk basically believe that that in order for any law to have a for, have force or effect over them they have to explicitly consent to that law and if they don't right. that no longer applies right right and that's why you know you will often hear this kind of rallying cry i do not consent and i've seen that i remember watching a a video by uh, an an anti-vax leader a protest leader in vancouver and he he referenced that several times i do not consent to these health care measures these public health rules what does that mean so when they make that argument i do not consent what are they trying to say and why is that an important part of this sort of ideology I mean, it's kind of a a prime example of the sort of of relationship that they think uh, every person ought to have with the state, which is uh, public health orders, any kind of of public measures that are designed to, in this case, curb the spread of the Delta variant of of COVID-19. They figure that 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 is actually overstepping the bounds of what is what is legally allowed. And so when when they say I do not consent. They are—they're not just making a rhetorical point. They, in their sort of ideology, they're invoking what they think is sort of a legal precedent that says we need to have this open and explicit consent for any attempt by the government to regulate us. And if we do not consent to that, the government can't make us do anything. Right. Um, and so, so that's sort of where they're getting this from. Right. And this has been around for a long time. Like, you know, this sovereign citizen movement or this free men movement has been around really for decades. And I remember covering a court case from a guy who tried to argue that he didn't have to pay his taxes because he did not consent to being taxed by the government. He was a sovereign citizen. So it's, this has been around and I guess it's just been picked up by the anti-vax movement. Um, is there any legal validity to it at all like has has it ever has any of this ever been like tested in court tested in court yes uh has it ever been successful no um the the so the 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 using your example of the 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 anti-vaxxers that went into the schools and salmon arm uh, a lawyer in Kelowna was shown their notice of legal liability uh and they asked you know what do you what's your take on this and the response I'm pr- like almost word for word from the lawyer was this is absolute nonsense. Like, and if you read the documents that they, that they, they issue and they're often notarized uh, or they're the, the rulings of what they call common law courts. Uh, it, it, it's a, in fact a, a kind of word salad of a mish, mishmash of, of vaguely legal sounding terms kind of thrown onto a page uh to make it look 
official to make it look like it it has some legal weight. Um, But if you pick it apart, there's nothing. There's no there's no coherent argument being presented. Right. It can be intimidating, though, right, for someone who receives uh, what looks like an official notice or someone handing them a document saying, I am serving you with a yeah. notice of liability. I mean, we saw this tactic on display at the Salmon Arm protests, as you mentioned. They went into the schools. They said they were there to serve the principal with these legal documents. We've seen this happen in British Columbia in the last few months. There have been restaurants that are enforcing the public health order people show up and try to serve the owner with a legal notice of liability. We've had politicians yeah. and, and, and town mayors in British Columbia, same thing. People show up at the mayor's office and say, I, I want to, I'm serving you with this document. Is that like, that's an intimidation thing, is it not? I mean, is that one of the purposes of this is to kind of intimidate people? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to argue that it isn't. Um, I, I, you know, from my own research and looking back at the history of this movement, um, in the United States, for example, the FBI had been following these these groups because they'd been fringe elements of of far right activists or activism in, for since the the, the early 1980s. Um, but they've actually labeled this exact tactic as paper terrorism, and it's the idea that that by uh, presenting public officials or even just civil servants with these official looking and often quite stark uh, notices to cease and desist or warrants for arrest or, or, you know, know, notices of legal liability. The idea is, is that you are intimidating those servants into, you know, so that they'll stop doing the thing that you're against. So, I mean, speaking for myself, I have a really hard time interpreting what happened in Salmon Arm as anything other than an attempt at intimidating school officials and children, right? Like they, yeah. they didn't go into empty schools. They went into schools where children were being, were then forced into hold and secure protocols. They were there to intimidate people in order to get them to think twice about opening uh, uh, vaccination clinics uh, yeah. on those campuses. We continue my discussion with Professor Edwin Hodge from the University of Victoria, and we're talking about the legal ideology is driving the anti-vaccination movement or parts of it. Uh, called the Sovereign Citizen Theory, or as it's known in Canada, the Free Men on the Land Movement. We see this at anti-vax rallies, anti-vax websites as well. The Free Men on the Land Movement, is that kind of a a Canada-specific descriptor, Uh, Professor Hodge, or they call it that in the United States as well? seems like it's more a Canadian thing, isn't it, the Free Men? Yeah, it's it's primarily a Canadian, although I have uh, begun to uh, see elements of, of, of or at least uh, that moniker showing up uh, in, in the United Kingdom as well. Um, it's easier to sort of think of the Freeman on the land in Canada as a kind of like, yeah, made in Canada permutation of sovereign citizen ideology, which started as an American phenomenon. Right. And how widespread is this? I mean, as a guy who studies it, do you see this popping up a lot across the country and uh, on different issues? Yeah, that's, that's a really tricky question. So, so about 10 years ago, the estimates coming out of, of the U.S. was about 300,000 members in the U.S. and about 30,000 in Canada. But those are really rough estimates. And these days, I think, are the, are the 30,000 dedicated adherents? Yeah, I think that that's probably a, a reasonable estimate. Are there more people who are sort of 
cherry picking elements of this ideology and blending it into other beliefs that they have, yeah, I think that number is yeah. far greater. Right. And when you talk about some of the uh, the tactics that are, are used by some of these groups, like serving public officials or business owners with notices of liability or cease and desist letters if they're enforcing a public health order, you know, someone shows up and tries to hand them what looks like a legal document that says you're breaking the law, you must cease and desist. You know, we talked about this sort of the intimidating nature of that. I wonder if another goal of this would be to just undermine public confidence in public health orders. Like if you've got people arguing that this is illegal and I've got case law that can prove it or I've got a document in my hand that shows it, does that does that partially, in some people's minds, maybe undermine confidence in, in what uh, authorities are doing? I think that's actually a fairly reasonable take. Um, the, it's certainly the case that, uh, that, that you have these groups, um, rather than saying things like, yeah, look, we, we disagree with perhaps the extent of the public health order, or we have a reasonable opposition to elements of, of, of sort of uh, uh, immunization uh, records or whatever. That's one thing. But what a lot of these, these groups, at least the more uh, sort of vocal members are saying is, this is tyranny. This mm. is dictatorship. This is like one step removed from Adolf Hitler. That kind of rhetoric really can't do anything but uh, be, you know, sort of undermine or attack not just elements of, say, a, a broad spectrum public health policy, but the notion that the government should be engaged in the business of protecting citizens through these sorts of measures at all. Yeah, and when you take a look at it, like, this is not just in Canada, but it's in the United States. You mentioned the United Kingdom. It's kind of around the world, really. When you take a look south of the border in the United States at some of the the militia movements in, in the United States, or I'm thinking about some of the tragedies we've seen in places like like Waco with the, with the Branch Davidians and stuff. W- was there some of that thinking under underpinning some of those situations, like the, the, the militia movement in the United States? Are they part of this, too? Yeah, absolutely. They uh, so they if we're if we're being if we're pay, splitting hairs, the militia movement and the sovereign citizens are technically two different kinds of manifestations of what we might call extreme uh, right wing ideology. But we do know that there there are is cross pollination. So, for example, guys like Timothy McVeigh, he was yeah. associated with the militia movement. He was associated with white nationalist groups. He was also associated with uh, with this sovereign citizen ideology, and he is, of course, uh, he and uh, some accomplices were the perpetrators of the Oklahoma City bombing. We know that um, that Randy Weaver, who was uh, at the heart of the so-called siege at Ruby Ridge, yes. he uh, also had some of these these ideologies uh, un, sort of under the surface of, of and blended with some of his other anti-government ideologies. So, yeah, we do see this these kinds of cross-pollinations. Right. Okay, we just got a minute left here. Like, when you think about some of the other sort of conspiracy theories out there right now, like QAnon, for example, I mean, is there, are there elements of the, the QAnon belief system that are part of this too? Absolutely. And that, yeah. to me, is, the, is the, the, most, the most concerning thing is uh, I've never seen a movement ad- adaptable as QAnon. Uh, honestly, I've never seen a movement that has been able to, to draw in not only fringe members of the far, far right, but also 
you know, college educated suburban moms who frequent yeah. yoga blocks. There, this ideology is cropping up all through this. It's it's spreading through our social media networks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, I just over I just saw listen to some of the protest speeches and front lawn of the legislature and the anti anti vax protesters. And a lot of people are they don't look crazy. They don't look fringe. Uh, sometimes they're talking what sounds like sort of pseudo law or semi convincing legal arguments. But a lot of it, when you look closer, it's underpinned by these kind of belief systems that we say it's a fascinating area of study. And uh, I certainly appreciate your expertise on it. Thank you very much for coming on today to talk about it. It's my pleasure. All right, let's talk about the recent federal election in Canada now. One of the strangest elections we've seen. A lot of people called it an enormous and expensive waste of time, uh, basically because we re-elected the same liberal minority government we had before the election, right back where we started. One thing this election did, though, was it highlighted something Canadian security experts have been warning about for a long time. And that's the potential for China to interfere in Canadian elections and our system of democracy. Just a few months ago, CSIS, Canada's National Intelligence Service, warned that China was increasing its intimidation and influence in Canadian politics. Look what we saw during the election. You had a Conservative MP in Metro Vancouver, Kenny Chu, uh, says that he believes that Chinese state interference may have cost him his seat in the House of Commons. He says that he was subjected to a lot of intimidation and criticism that he thinks can be traced back to the Chinese government. Have a listen to this now. So here's Kenny Chu, the ousted conservative MP, talking about the criticism that he endured uh, in some chat rooms uh, from Chinese citizens or Chinese voters. Have a listen to this. Here he is speaking to Jazz Johal. Uh, some of the chat room, chat rooms, and, and screenshots that I've received from them, uh, they, there's there are people who actually um, listen to CKNW as well. But uh, it looks like that they've they continue to be able to twist and uh, misrepresent uh, information being presented. Um, for example, that I've been accused in those uh, chat room that. Um, uh, I have not paid attention to the pandemic efforts uh, in Richmond. That I don't care. I didn't care about the anti-Asian racism in the past couple of years. And um, there are other accusations. Okay, Kenny Chu there, the former conservative MP. He lost his seat in the last election. Chu was called, a, he was called by some, some critics as a self-hating Chinese-Canadian who wanted to suppress his own community. Of course, he denies that. Can this be traced to the Chinese government? Uh, did they influence in any way the outcome of this election? Let's discuss now with my guest, Phil Gursky. Phil is a former CSIS analyst, and he's now the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Phil, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. And I find this a fascinating situation where you've got a conservative candidate who believes there was maybe some meddling in his campaign. And he's not the only one. We've heard from other conservative candidates in particular who feel that maybe there was some a Chinese interference going on in this election. Do you think there was? Well, a, a couple things. Um, could this be sour grapes because they didn't win? Well, that's a possibility. Uh, it's also important to point out these are allegations. They have not yeah. been uh, established. 
Uh, and while I'm not a China specialist per se, my time at CSIS has been at counterterrorism. I did work an awful lot with China specialists, uh, my counterparts uh, within the security service. And as you point out in your introduction, Mike, uh, CSIS has been warning about this not just since this year, but since the 2000s. The Chinese agents, i.e., members of the Chinese government, who are either spies or, I don't know, you know, uh, provocateurs, were infiltrating Canadian society and spreading ideas that, um, you know, friendly to China and not friendly to Canada. So I would say the bottom line is it's highly possible that what Mr. Chu was saying about his campaign actually came to pass and that Chinese agents were trying to influence the Chinese community against him because. You know, it isn't rocket science, Mike. The Liberal government hasn't actually been anti-Chinese, have they? They've been dragging their feet on a whole bunch of issues, including Huawei. So the Chinese uh, intelligence and the government may have seen it in their best interest for the Liberal government to be re-elected and not not a Conservative minority. Sure, because the Conservatives were promising a tougher stand uh, against China, saying we were going to stand up to Beijing. They talked about some targeted trade sanctions. They wanted to get tougher against China. Uh, the conservative leader at one point had talked about a potential boycott of the Beijing Olympics. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that's why some of these uh, conservative candidates were potentially targeted here. But I wonder if it's can it be traced to the Chinese government, though, or is this just Ooh. a case of like China, people of Chinese descent who may still feel some loyalty to the to the motherland or to China who are, are sensitive to criticism of, of China? Yeah, that's a tough one, and it would be really hard to to get an answer to that question without knowing exactly what CSIS has found in its investigation. Just there's benefit, Mike. You know, CSIS does have the authority under its legislation to investigate threats to the security of Canada, and foreign interference is one of the four four major threats as defined in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. I'm not aware of exactly what they've uncovered, but the fact that CSIS directors going back Fadden in the 2000s warned the, the government that the Harper government at the time this was happening. I've got to sort of, I won't bet the mortgage, but I'm pretty confident that CSIS has discovered that in fact it is tied back to the, to the Chinese government and that they are running agents or people of influence in Canada. You're right. I'm sure there are you know probably thousands of Chinese Canadians that feel some kind of a, a pull or an allegiance to the PRC, which makes you wonder what the hell they're doing here. That's a whole other, other question. Um, but yeah, it, it's an impossible question to answer. But you know, Mike, sometimes if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a, a, a foreign agent. Uh, that's all I'll say on that front. Okay. Let me play another clip here for you from Kenny Chu, the ousted conservative candidate here, who, by the way, says he actually discussed his concerns with CSIS, Canada's spy agency. Have a listen to this. There have been numerous uh, meetings that uh, some are actually initiated by, by CSIS themselves. So you have had interaction with CSIS, and, and, and you don't know if there's an investigation going on in their part? They, they would not tell me one way or the other, or who else they would interview and contact. So did they contact you, or did you contact them? The very initial one was actually contacted um, by CSIS. Um, I, I did not know them but they took the initiative to contact me first. Okay, is Kenny Chu there, the defeated conservative candidate in discussion with Jazz Joe Hall here on CKNW. Um, does that does that surprise you? I, I imagine it does not, Phil, that maybe CSIS was in, con- in conversation, in contact with this MP. Oh, absolutely, and that's what CSIS does, Mike, is that yeah. you know if we come across information that points to a threat to national security, be it terrorism or espionage or foreign interference, we have a mandate not just to investigate it, 
but to talk to Canadians and others who may have information to help us understand the nature of that threat. So if a CSIS, you know, intelligence officer contacted Mr. Chu and said, hey, you know what, here's who we are, here's our concerns, can you help us? That's what CSIS does. Whether they, you know, whether it, it morphed into a full-fledged investigation, of course they're not going to tell Mr. Chu that because that's highly sensitive, but CSIS is just doing exactly what we want CSIS to do, and that's determine the nature of these threats so that we, they can be mitigated as soon as possible. Right. On yesterday's show, I interviewed Kevin Garrett, and I know you're familiar with his case, Phil. Yeah. It was a, a BC man who spent two years in jail in China and very, very similar circumstances to the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who are th- thankfully back on, in Canada now. Very similar experience that Kevin Garrett had. There was an arrest on an extradition warrant of a Chinese national in Canada, and soon after that, he was arrested in China by Chinese authorities. He spent two years in jail there. He faced a one-day trial where he was convicted of espionage, and he was eventually sent home, uh, just like the two Michaels. And one thing that he said to me on yesterday's show I I found kind of surprising. He said that even when he got back to Canada, he believes he was still under surveillance by the Chinese government. Now, have a listen to there. He believes he was followed while he got back into Canada. Here's what he said to me yesterday. Well, we absolutely were in Canada for the first wow. year or two. It was obvious, and a lot of times it wasn't obvious, but it was there. Okay, so he said he felt he was being followed by Chinese agents even after he returned to Canada. Does that ring true to you? I mean, does China have agents here in Canada? I think the answer is yes, and CSIS has been saying this for decades. Whether or not Mr. Garrett was followed per se, I can't speak to that because I don't know. But, you know, there's no question that China, uh, look at Mike, they've engaged in bully tactics for years, not just with the two Michaels, but with him as well. China doesn't play by the same rules that we do. And if they perceive that Mr. Garrett poses a threat to them, whether by what he says or what he does, or he may embarrass the Chinese regime with the statements he comes out with, they're going to want to keep tabs on it. Absolutely. That's the way China operates. And, and, you know, all of this goes down to the basic question, why are we allowing this to happen as a nation? Why isn't the government calling this out? I just went on the CBC page out of curiosity, Mike, before we came on today, to see if there's any mention about, the, you know, the two Michaels and, and, and the state of Huawei. And, and this, you know, it's crickets. There's nothing on the Web page anymore. So have, have Canadians moved on. The Michaels are back. And now this is yesterday's news. The fact is that China is going to continue this behavior because we allow them to do so. They become the international bully, and we're not taking enough steps to prevent that. So I'm not surprised in theory that they would be keeping tabs on it. Whether it was full-out surveillance by agents, it's a hard one for me to answer. My guest is Phil Gursky, former CSIS analyst. He's now the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. His latest book is The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the present. Phil, when we take a look at uh, the behavior of the, the Chinese Communist Party government, uh, our relations to China here in Canada, do you think, how big of a threat is this? I mean, isn't, isn't this sort of normal operating behavior for any kind of superpower that, of course, they're going to have spies, they're going to try and exert their influence in other countries? Or is it more is the is the threat or the risk more important or dire than we realize? Well, you're asking all the tough questions today, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it is part and parcel of a superpower. Look at, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. I started my career in signals intelligence at CSE 
communication security establishment during the Cold War. So I know I remember what it was like when we were worried about the Soviet Union and its allies. That was the number one threat. Remember mutually assured destruction was going to you know destroy the Earth. So yeah. yeah, the Soviets had agents. The Chinese have agents. All kinds of people have agents in this country. And so a couple of things though. First of all, it's part of the CISA's mandate to uncover these agents and to provide advice to the government what to do about it. Secondly, um, what kind of first world country allows people to run willy nilly in your own country, influencing your citizens in ways that aren't in your best interest? Uh, you know, we have a very large Chinese Canadian population and 99.99% of them are very loyal Canadians, I'm sure. But you don't think Chinese agents are trying to sow division amongst that community to, you know, pull on their heartstrings that, you know, Xi Jinping has said this publicly, you're Chinese first and you're, you're something else second. And, and they're trying to play that up. So, yeah, I think that Canada has to take this seriously and has to try and put a stop to this because, you know, as I said to you before, Mike, China's not our friend. They're not our ally, and they're not the same country as our allies are. You know, Western, secular, liberal democracies that believe in the rule of law and, and do things a certain way. China's not part of that club. And so for them to do whatever the hell they want in our soil, that should be seen as unacceptable by Canadians. Okay, let's take a phone call here on the open line. Jay calling from Coquitlam. Hi, Jay. Oh, hi, Mike. I wanted to answer your question about whether we should boycott the games, and I think yeah. that the previous speaker was mentioning apathy, and I think that's a valid concern. If we boycott the games, some people will feel like we've, you know, job done. We boycotted the games, and what real impact will that have? Whereas uh, if we were to take an approach that was more behind the scenes, like, say, going to other countries that buy Chinese goods and try to convince them in the name of democracy to purchase Canadian goods, we're helping our own economy while taking a notch out of the Chinese economy and offering, offering our officials the ability to have, you know, deniability that they can just say, well, this is just us, you know, selling our goods. Yeah. This isn't us trying to undermine you or anything. And I don't believe in silver bullets, so I don't think this would be our only approach. We definitely want a multi-pronged approach. This is just one that comes to mind. Okay, Jay, thank you very much for the call. Well, China is an economic superpower for sure, and our trade with China is massive, and this is why it makes it such a difficult balancing act, I guess. But when it comes to the Olympic Games, I I've never really liked the idea of punishing athletes who have trained their whole lives for a shot at winning a an Olympic gold medal and, and using them as uh, kind of pawns in the middle of uh, international disputes. But I don't know, Phil, what do you think about the, the calls to boycott the Beijing Olympics? Does that make any sense to you? Well, yes and no, and I agree with everything you just said, Mike. It really is. It's a, it's a, it's a paper exercise. It does punish Canadian athletes. Yes, it would, you know, take a bit of the shine off China sponsored Olympics. But you think if Can Canadian boycotts going to make a difference if another 185 countries still attend? I think your the earlier you know, the speaker made a good point. The caller talked about the economics, and we have a, we have basically sold out our economy to China for the past 30 or 40 years to the detriment of the Canadian economy. Yes, I'm a big believer in international trade. I've been reading The Economist since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. But, you know, this is the way you're going to hit the Chinese is by not allowing them to manufacture the things that we should. I mean, the fact that, you know, under the pandemic, the whole vaccine availability, I think it's a good idea to put essential goods like that in, in the hands of another nation that can use them how they see fit and not, and not to your interests. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated issue. But I think a lot has to be done to confront China in, in cohort with all of our allies, by the way. Yeah. You know, the Americans... Five eyes, NATO, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, yeah. I mean, if we were to boycott the Olympics just on our own, I don't think that would be very good. I think you no. need you know, strength in numbers. You'd have to have a wider boycott effort here for exactly. it to be effective. Phil, thank you for coming on today. 
Always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. I appreciate it a lot. It's Phil Gursky. He is a former analyst with CSIS. Back to the show. Let's talk about the Vancouver Park Board now approving a draft bylaw last night that would impose a $500 fine for feeding urban wildlife. Lots of reports of people feeding the coyotes in Stanley Park leading up to those aggressive attacks we've seen this year. Let's check in with John Irwin now. He's a Park Board Commissioner. John, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, uh, Mike. Uh, you bet. You bet. Thank you. Can you tell me what the Park Board has done here with this uh, fine? Yeah, so basically, you know, uh, the fine was uh, $250 for feeding only dangerous uh, wildlife, and now it's been increased to 500 I actually made a motion to maybe have it be 750 but that didn't, that didn't succeed. Um, and uh, basically, now all... Uh, animals are included in the feeding. So uh, we're working hard to prevent feed and food sources from getting into the park system, especially Stanley Park, um, and and also have people take their food waste uh, away, you know, when, when there's a full bin situation. Um, and, and we're also replacing bins. We've got a number of them in already, I think, uh, that are wild, wildlife proof also. Yeah, do you think people feeding the coyotes in the park was one of the reasons that we saw all those attacks? That's what, uh, you know, people who've studied this for years, like uh, Kristen Walker, you know, Dr. Walker from UBC advised us of, and, uh, you know, lots of the literature talks about this as well, that, that you know, feeding uh, wildlife, uh, you know, A, it's not very good for the wildlife generally, Um and and b it, it can drive this a lot and and you know last night we were shown pictures of you know bags of food used to bait you know other creatures like raccoons for photos and then the bag gets left behind and then you know any any species can eat it including coyotes uh yeah yeah so so we were told that it drives it quite a bit right yeah i had the the part one of the park board managers tell me recently that a lot of this is or at least some of it's being driven by social media photos people want to take photos of themselves with a coyote or a raccoon and post it on instagram which just seems insane to me is that what's going on like people are trying to get like instagram photos is that why they're doing this I think that's part of it. And then the other images we saw was, you know, there's a person with a pretty high quality camera, digital camera using bait and then wanting to take really nice close-ups of the raccoons with not necessarily them being the picture, right? So I think a combination of those, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man, so, that's, that's just ridiculous. Okay, $500 fine. And yeah. now this will be up to the park board or the park rangers to give out these tickets. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. they're gonna they're gonna be given the power to to give out the tickets, similar to the non-smoking tickets that they can issue. Right, not smoking in the parks. So, right, and a lot of people will say, well, it, it's one thing to threaten a fine, but the actual enforcement is another. Like, you know, do you anticipate that we'll see a lot of these tickets written? I mean, is is, is this type of wildlife feeding in the park is it widespread? When and when could it start? Yeah, well, it won't start until October 4th because now that we've made the bylaw change, we have to, you know, work it out. And just in terms of our system, we have to pass the bylaw by reading it three times. We're going to do that on October 4th. Uh, and and then basically, yeah, from that point on, uh, tickets can be handed out. And, you know, if you think about this, Mike, these tickets are like uh, the way speeding tickets and demerits are in the driving system, right? That, you know, the police can't catch every speeder, uh, but the fact that there's a speed limit 
slows most people down, right? You know, not necessarily to the speed limit, but slows them down and makes safer, you know, roads for ourselves, right? right? Uh, So this is similar where there's a deterrent and people will know if they get caught, they could get a ticket and they'd have to pay up, uh, you know, a good good amount of money. Um, And uh, yeah, and and then the other thing we're going to look at a bit later is because apparently some people do this again and again um, for repeat offenders that that we might step it up so it might go you know 500 for the first 750 for the second a thousand for the third or something like that okay you mentioned that this is a, a, a regime a ticketing regime that would include feeding all urban wildlife right so not just raccoons not just coyotes but it would be illegal now to feed ducks in the park is that correct yeah, yeah, that is correct, and you know, part why, of that, why ducks? Isn't that isn't that part of a you know just a, a tradition? Let's go down to the park with my kids and give some breadcrumbs to the ducks. Um, yeah, it, it, it is, but you know, um, some traditions aren't that great, right? Uh, mm. In the sense that um, you know, basically, we we changed you know certain practices we've done in in the past right and and I know it'll require some public education and public information so you know we'll have to have you know our our staff work on that um you know and and in the early days it might be just warning people who are feeding you know ducks for instance um or geese but you know then after time you know it's going to be okay you know you we warned you we put up signs you keep doing it you know, now you, you get the fine for doing it. So. Right. What what took this so long? I mean, we have seen, what, like 50 reported coyote attacks in, in the past year or so. Uh, some people think there may be more attacks occurred than that, if you, if you consider uh, coyote attacks that may have gone unreported. That's a lot of attacks. I, I interviewed a young woman on the show here who was attacked way back in January and suffered life-changing injuries as a result of an attack by a coyote. And here we are all these months later, and we're finally getting around to this fine. What took so long? Yeah, well, I would say I would say a couple things. First of all, you know, my heart really goes out to that specific victim and all the victims of the attacks. Um, but we were also trying to, you know, because this was a, a new situation for us, a novel situation. So we were trying to, uh, you know, do specific um, calls of just, you know, the, the problematic uh, species cameras were put in. Uh, so, so we took a, a few out, uh, and then we just took more out lately. Um, and I think we were also um, caught by uh, probably, um, from my observation, uh, a wave of people coming to the park during the pandemic, when especially when you couldn't dine in, uh, and and eating a lot of food and leaving a lot of food waste around, right? And mm-hmm. and I think we've since gotten on top of that, you know. So so yeah. I think we could have been faster, but we were also trying to do it in um, in a reasonable way, right? Because my hope is by doing everything we're doing now, there won't be a necessity to do another call. Do you think, last question for you, John, do you think that most of the people who are doing this are people like, you know, they've got expensive cameras, they're trying to get like Instagram beauty shots or whatever, you know, that, I think that's ridiculous. But is there also a problem with homeless people or people who are mentally ill in the park who who may be feeding animals? And if if, if a bylaw enforcement officer shows up and says you got a five hundred dollar ticket, I wonder if, if for a person in that situation, if it will make any difference at all, or if they even have the capacity to to pay the fine. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think there's, you know, we know there are some unhoused people in the park, but I don't think their numbers are that high. And then the other thing I'd point out is, you know, we've known, you know, even before I was on the park board that people were there. Uh, so they've been there for a long time. So picking them out is the factor. I think another factor we need to think about is the possibility that the drought and a lack of water uh, and the heat itself might have kind of driven the species, you know, even ourselves when it's hot like that, we get a little bit grumpy and nasty, you know. Mm. So, you know, but I'm just theories, theorizing on the fly over that. Okay. Right? Like, All right. Yeah. John, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Take you care. You bet. I appreciate it. John Irwin there. He's a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. $500 fine now for feeding wildlife in the park.